0: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Sex Lives, the New York Magazine sex podcast. I'm David Wallace-Wells, and with me today, as always, are New York Magazine sex columnist, Maureen O'Connor. Hey, Maureen. Hey, David. And Allison Davis of the Cut. Hey, Allison. Hello. Before we get
1: to... Weird.
0: No, we must keep it That's in. Weird. We must keep it in. All right. Before we get to the show this week, let me remind you about the Sex Lives voicemail box. We've been ending every episode with your call, so please hit us up at any time 646 494 3590. Well, most episodes, I guess, this week we ran out of time, but please, please, please keep your calls coming. We love hearing from you and talking about everything you're telling us. Coming up in just a minute, we're going to interview Lauren Howe, who recently wrote a piece for The Atlantic on why some people are tortured by old relationships and other people basically just do not give a fuck. First though, giant news or tiny news, (laughs) Hitler had a tiny penis, the New York Post reported today. Um, Hitler's dick was all fucked up, wrote another magazine off the same new book, which is Jonathan Mayo and Emma Craigie's book, Hitler's Last Day. It turns out actually that some of these claims were a little overheated. Um, we can get to that in a minute, but the amazing thing I think for all of us was how completely inevitable it seemed in retrospect that people would try and explain the Holocaust with a micro <laughs> Yeah,
1: That rang pretty true, actually. <laughs> I'm a little bit ashamed of how quickly I was like, "Oh, of course he had a small penis because you can only be capable of such great sins if you have a tiny, tiny penis."
0: It's funny. It's you know, it used to be like something that women would say, like about how awful men were that like uh, you know they do things like start wars because of their <laughs> like issues with their dicks. Right. But now it seems like it's like almost claiming too much credit for the men. How that like you're capable of doing something like a war and like a uh, a holocaust staging a holocaust <laughs> simply because so of awful. like your own sex issues like that's it's
2: like way too way way gives way too much credit a to someone's penis b i feel this is a very unfair stereotype for like a thousand reasons but also because there are many people with micro penises who are fine humans <laughs> <laughs> you cannot blame your holocaust on your penis <laughs> <laughs> fyi guys i don't know if you if you accidentally thought that but no i feel like it's super crazy but the thing is the um the book what it actually said was that hitler possibly, but we don't even know, maybe suffered from the condition called hypospadias, which is a birth defect. It affects one in 200 men. In fact, I have been with a man with hypospadias, and let me tell you, it is not actually that bad most of the time. It doesn't actually cause like... what is the disease? It's just like a thing where the hole in the dick hole is like in a slightly different spot and it can be really extreme in some people, but in other people, it is just slightly different. Yeah. And on top of that, we don't even know for sure that he actually had it, but there are all these rumors that he only had one ball.
0: Oh, I thought that was established fact. Is that? I've been citing it all day as like, oh, well, we already knew that he only had one testicle.
2: <laughs> well, we already knew that there was a possibility that maybe he only had one testicle. But
0: isn't that and true it of, of anybody?
2: <laughs> Anyone
1: anybody with testicles, there's a possibility that there's only one. <laughs> there always
2: is a possibility.
0: But I've always been interested in, like, just, like, Hitler as sex symbol. I mean, he's, like, both this, like... There's a way in which he embodies some kind of national virility, but also he always seems so asexual to me with his, like, weird comb-over. And do you guys get any sexual energy from Hitler?
2: No. I don't feel comfortable even Uh. talking about that, to be honest. Yeah, no. I mean, I guess people always did tell stories about his sex life, you know, and whatnot. But um, it strikes me as so sort of weird how no matter what if some a man does something wrong we like come to this story about that it has to be related to his virility somehow which strikes me as like um a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy in some way that like if we continually tell men that like a man can only be this horrible of a monster if he has a tiny penis then of course men are going to go crazy about their tiny penises because we've already told them you're going to be like hitler if you have a tiny penis
0: well one thing that occurred to me is like assuming for a second that hitler did have a tiny penis (laughs) <laughs> Would he definitely know that he had a tiny penis like this is an age before porn like he probably you know probably saw some men naked but only like in passing in locker rooms and, and like that kind of thing. He probably didn't see other men actually engaged in sex like how how clear a sense did you have of like what an average or you know or small or large dick was know. in 1920.
1: I don't know, Maureen, what do you think? I think word of mouth would travel, like, if there was just... I think
2: you have a vague sense of where you stack up. Although I will say, in my experience, um, all men think their penises are smaller than they actually are. Okay, maybe not all men. I'm going to amend that. Many men, when I've actually been with dudes with legitimately big dicks, and I'm like, no, seriously, legitimately, and they're like, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And sometimes I'm like, no, 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 seriously, do you know that this is actually a large penis? And, like, I feel like they don't necessarily (laughs) know it sometimes. Or, like, their understanding of it is slightly off. Whereas men that have average sized penis or slightly smaller than average are like so disproportionately afraid of their penises being too small, like to a larger degree than than the standard deviation of their penis. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Well, what do you do you just chalk that up to like having seen a lot of big dicks in porn?
2: Yeah, I think it's a combination of A, big dicks in porn, B just being so fucking afraid of it, right? Like yeah. if every single day of, you know, you're utterly terrified of one particular trait being weak in in you then you probably sort of exaggerate it in your head
0: I, you know you also end up like you end up seeing your dick a lot as a dude you end up seeing your dick a lot more when it's limp and small compared to when it's hard and big i think like women may have a slightly different you know view of that's things.
2: true because you know what all penises are kind of big to the degree that you're like what the hell is this random limb sticking out of nowhere? It's so counterintuitive. So in that sense, yeah, they all are kind of big.
0: Yeah, I think they're like they're, they're, they're all generous. pretty big when they're hard and they're all pretty small when they're soft, no? Uh, I
2: don't know. You uh. guys are being very
1: generous to like <laughs> to men's penises right now. You wanna judge
0: them a little more harshly? Like a little
1: bit. There yeah. are some small there are some small penises out there, hard or soft. They're yeah. just there are. there are. Not saying they're all gonna turn into Hitler. But they do exist.
0: (laughs) It's the one ball that causes the Hitler. Obviously. So we've been talking about Hitler's uh, possibly, probably quite small, if not exactly tiny penis. Also, maybe his missing testicle. (laughs) Next up, we're going to speak to Lauren Howe about the psychology of breakups. welcome to the show and thanks so much for joining us
3: thank you so much for having me happy to be here
0: yeah before we truly get started I should say you are a PhD candidate at Stanford who recently published a piece in the Atlantic called why some people take breakups harder than others which is what we wanted to talk to you about so maybe the first thing to do is to tell us a little bit about how you became interested in that question and then how you went about studying it as an academic
3: yeah, so my uh, co-author Carol Dweck, and I were really interested in why some people seem to cling to their failures more than others. Um, we noticed that, especially in the context of relationships, there just seem to be some people who really struggle to recover from setbacks, even years later. Um, you know, they talk about how distressed these these setbacks uh, make them, and how much uh, thinking about it kind of haunts them, um whereas other people seem to bounce back more readily.
0: And is that, so we wondered, is that basically true of all kinds of setbacks, or is it especially true with relationships?
3: Yeah, so one reason why we decided to conduct our research in the realm of relationships is that um, Carol's actually traditionally done more work um, in the realm of academics. That's where a lot of uh, the theories that she's looked at started being tested, so how people respond to academic challenges and failures. Um, but we thought that uh Romantic relationships are a very interesting uh, context when it comes to dealing with rejection and breakup, so we wanted to do some more work in that area.
0: And how would you, how'd you do it?
3: We started by asking people to reflect on experiences from their own lives, times that they uh, were rejected in a romantic context and it was painful. And then we asked people some questions about how they dealt with those relationships. So we wanted to get a sense of how much pain people were still feeling um, in dealing with the breakups. We asked them whether they were still upset when they thought about the person who'd rejected them, whether it still bothered them to think about that experience. And we also wanted to get a sense of how much they felt like breakups would affect their future experiences and relationships. So we asked them whether they worried that the same kind of thing might keep happening to them, whether they thought they were bad at relationships. Um, and whether they uh, worried that they might never find someone who truly loves them. In other surveys, we asked people to imagine being rejected um, it, by reading a story about rejection. So we took kind of two different tactics to look at people's feelings about rejection.
0: So how did you, what did you find about the ways that people who felt, you know, invincible and not so affected by breakups, how do they differ from those who were totally crushed? Like what was the, what were the, what were the main findings?
3: So we found that people who reported more distress um, when reflecting on or imagining rejection tended to be people who linked the rejection to the self in a negative way. So they were people who felt like rejection unearthed um, a deep-seated flaw that they had. So they tended to agree more with statements like, I worry that there's something wrong with me because I got rejected. Um, this rejection made me question my view of myself, or um, this rejection made me also wonder if other people think less highly of me um, than I thought they did, wondering what the rejection revealed about them that was deficient.
0: In the cases where people felt really sort of brutally revealed um, or, you know, b- brutalized in some way by the breakup, did it tend to be that it sort of confirmed some anxiety and neuroses they had about themselves beforehand? Or was it that the breakup itself like gave them a whole new category of self-doubt with which they could torture themselves? <laughs>
3: Yeah, so when we saw that some people seem to be telling these stories where rejection revealed some kind of negative characteristic, um, a certain group of people seem to be telling these stories, and that was people who believe that personality doesn't tend to change over time. So theories about personality say that people can have two kind of basic beliefs about attributes, either that personality is stable like plaster and doesn't really tend to change over time, or that personality traits can change and develop over time. And we thought that people who believe that personality doesn't tend to change might see um, or respond to rejections by seeing them as a piece of evidence about who they are as a person. So you might think that you have these kind of underlying set of traits that don't tend to change. um, And in response to someone rejecting you, then you wonder, what did they see about me? So did they glimpse some truth about me that I don't know about um, that made me undesirable or rejectable? You know, I'm wondering if because
2: um, you also point out that idea that like when somebody, you know, when they really take seriously the things their partner thinks about them or if they sort of confuse the, the relationships traits with their own traits or their, you know, our memories are my memories, that kind of sort of conflation of the relationship identity and the personal identity. But the thing that seems so confusing to me is like, did you find any correlation between the type of relationships that cause the worst types of breakups? Because when I imagine a relationship where I get my sense of self very strongly from the relationship, that also strikes me as kind of a good relationship in some ways. Like, that's a relationship where I care about that person's opinion about me. You know, the relationship is really central to my life.
3: There's a lot of research uh, done by Arthur Aaron and his colleagues that shows that um, relationships where your identity does become kind of involved with the other person's identity, where you take on their interests and perspectives, but that's a really rewarding aspect of relationships. Um, mm-hmm. That isn't necessarily something that you don't want to do because it's too risky or something like that, because that is one reason why um, relationships um, can be very uh, satisfying. But the problems come in when um, you respond to a rejection, um, regardless of how, how close you are with that person or how much your identity overlaps with that person, by kind of questioning your own uh, basic worth. And what we found is that that actually can happen in a lot of different situations, um, some that involve very uh, deep relationships, so like marriages or long term partnerships, but some that actually just involved um, rejection from a person who was essentially a stranger. Um, so, in one case, we asked people to imagine um, being rejected by someone who they met at a party, felt a spark with, and then later overheard saying that they would never be interested in going out um, on a date with you uh, to another friend. Um, and we found that even that kind of rejection made people question um, who they really were when they believed that personality was fixed. So people tended to react to this rejection from a stranger by kind of thinking like, oh, gosh, you know, what did they see about me that was so obviously undesirable?
0: But also, like, I guess, how could I have been so deluded to think that something was going on there that was obviously not going on there? That's got to be a painful thing to feel, too.
3: To kind of question your, your judgment as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting.
2: So then it's not really the, the shittiness of your breakup isn't really about the relationship
3: it also isn't really about the
2: other person. It sounds like it's really just about you and the way you view yourself.
3: Yeah, I think there's so many different um, factors that you can think about when it comes to a breakup. You can think about... The timing, um, you can think about the needs of the other person and maybe where they were um, on different pages than you. but I think it can be very tempting to tell these stories about the self where we have almost a protective uh, gut instinct to say like, okay, what was it about me? like what do I what do, what was wrong with me? What did I do that wasn't good enough? I have a question about about fixed
1: personalities like where are most people that that see their personality as something that's unchanging and kind of concrete, like where in their past are they finding like that, that definition? Is it like my personality was decided at middle school and that's like the person I'll always be because that's kind of like we're all fucked if that's the case. (laughs) But like, is there like a common kind of time in a person's life where they've decided that this is their concrete personality? Yeah. So I think
3: um, people who have these fixed beliefs about personality tend to kind of look at the things that happen to them to assess uh, where their traits are fixed. So they can kind of redefine themselves as they gather, like, new pieces of evidence. Right. So let's say, for instance, in middle school you developed this idea that you were bad at math. You got a, a, some bad grades on math tests and all those as pieces of evidence that you're not good at math. But then later on, um, you start taking different math classes in high school or college and do really well, then you could look to the, those pieces of evidence that you actually um, are good at math, that you're kind of assessing yourself based on these these outcomes, and that's how you might change your opinion about where your uh, true traits are really fixed.
0: But you might, I guess, think then, oh, but I'm also someone who um, doesn't thrive in every situation or doesn't always have, you know, my talents don't always shine or something like that. Like, so you're revising your view of yourself but to incorporate all the old information. I wonder just in general how all of, these, all of these surveys track with people's responses to rejection outside of romantic relationships. Is it basically the same pattern that you'd observed or your colleagues observed in studying, say, success and failure in academia or in the professional realm? Or is like the relationship and the breakup a kind of a separate emotional theater that runs by different rules?
3: People can certainly have uh, different beliefs about attributes, so they might believe that their personality is fixed, but that things like intelligence are malleable. So I think it's um, very domain-specific. But I think um, a lot of the same kind of patterns uh, do surface in relationships as do with people who have fixed mindsets in academic contexts. So, for instance, one finding with the uh, literature on fixed versus growth mindsets in uh, academic context is that people who have a setback in an academic context tend to be really wary of seeking out um, new challenges. They kind of tend to disengage from classes and areas where they haven't been successful, um, whereas we don't see that pattern with people who have growth mindsets. Um, and we see similar things in relationships where um, people do say, You know, if I uh, entered a new relationship, I would be wary, I would be guarded, I would put up walls. So we kind of see people being anxious about uh, future failure and taking steps to try to avoid uh, future failure in the same kind of way. This seems so sort
2: of bleak in that if the finding is that somebody who has sort of a fixed sense of personality is also the person who takes romantic rejection really badly, they have you know a horrible breakup that shakes their sense of self, they put up walls, then the next relationship, I mean, it sounds like they're sort of, how do you get out of this horrible spiral?
3: Yeah. Well, one really promising piece of evidence from our research is that it seems like you can actually change beliefs about personality. So um, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us don't explicitly know what our beliefs about personality are until we're grasped. And there's actually kind of evidence on both sides of the coin. So there is quite a bit of evidence that shows that attributes that we might think about as things that are kind of set in stone really can be changed and developed. Um, So things like empathy, for instance, can be grown through mindfulness training and stuff like that. So um, I think if you uh, kind of convince people of their potential for change and the, the fact that people can change and develop, and we see that all the time, um, that might help shift people's reactions to rejection and help them to cope with it more effectively.
2: So what I'm trying to get from this is that I was so curious that I was like, ah, uh, you know, like we're all used to dealing with, you know, friends that take breakups really badly. I was just talking with a girlfriend about this, about Whether it's better to like sort of pile on and they're like, yeah, he sucks. Or, you know, like, no, that person's wrong. Or whether it's better to be like, well, how can you improve? (laughs) Like, what is the correct, what is the better method in terms of getting somebody to stop feeling terrible about a breakup?
3: That's a good question. I think um, what our research suggests is just trying to encourage friends to tell stories other than ones that directly speak to the self. So um, people who, who tended to respond more positively to rejection told a variety of different stories. So some Mm -hmm. identified something that they felt like they could work on, but were very optimistic that they would be able to change that thing um, and that it would play out differently in other relationships. So you might think, like, okay, I was bad at communicating, but I'm not doomed to always being bad at communicating. You know, there are steps that I can take to become better at that if I want to. Um, But some people did just tell stories where they said, you know what, rejection is a part of life. It happens to everyone. It doesn't necessarily say anything about who I am as a person, Ah. um, and that's okay. So I think there's a couple, you know, because, I mean, it can be very healthy to connect um, rejection to the self and feel like you can change and develop, but I feel like, um, you know, that might not be true for all contexts, especially if it was a really terrible relationship where you weren't at fault or something like that.
0: And what about a situation in which you have someone who has, like, a pretty, a fixed sense of personality, and they go through several breakups in which they're given, like, sort of contradictory negative impressions of their own self like do they then take like the worst part of each of those critiques and bundle them together into some like miserable self-loathing cycle or do they are they able to see that like well if this person like if this person called me selfish but this person um but thought i was good in bed and this person thought i was really sweet but really awful in bed are they able to (laughs) say like well obviously you know, the truth probably has to be somewhere in between on both of those? Or are they just going to think I'm terrible in bed and I'm like the worst, the worst girlfriend ever?
3: Yeah, I think that's actually a really fascinating question. I would love to do follow-up research. um, kind of looking at trajectories over time, um, how people respond to successive rejections. Because you could imagine that people with a fixed mindset might say, okay, this is Like with every new rejection to think like, okay, this is obviously a pattern. You know, I've learned something else undesirable about me. There must be something (laughs) linking all of these rejections. Um, But yeah, it's hard to know whether uh, that's the case.
1: Is there any way that um, like a fixed sense of self can be a positive? Like, I don't know. To me, that always sounded like a good thing. Like, oh, fixed sense of self. You know who you are. You're not going to change no matter what happens. Is that a completely...
0: Diluted (laughs) view? Yeah.
3: Yeah. So I have, okay. I guess, um, like, kind of two different thoughts in response to that. So one is that um, I think the differences between people who have a fixed and growth mindset really come up um, in response to setbacks. Okay. So it could be awesome to think like, hey, I'm, you know, I believe that intelligence is fixed. I also believe that I'm super intelligent. Right. And that's never going to change. Um, that could be something that's awesome for your uh, self-esteem and for your life outlook until you, you deal with a challenge and have to respond to that. Um and I think also there's been some really fascinating research on what's called self-concept clarity. So that's um, this idea of having a clear sense of who you are, um, that you feel like you you really um, know who you are. Uh, and that is related with uh, positive outcomes, I think. You could have a fixed belief about personality, but still kind of be questioning who you are and looking at your um, life outcomes to tell you who you are. So having a fixed personality, I think, doesn't necessarily mean that you um, feel more secure in who you are. Got
0: it. Is it weird that I feel like I have a very fixed sense of my own personality, but I feel like everybody around me is changing all the time? (laughs) Is that a weird view of the world?
3: That's actually, I think that's a super interesting question. (laughs) Um, The scale that we use to measure beliefs about personality asks about other people's personalities or, like, personality in general, rather than specifically what you believe about your personality. Right, right. mean, um, I wonder if the results would be different, actually, if you looked at that.
2: So part of my ulterior motive is wanting you to come on this. As a person who is, you know, you've interviewed or read st- um, responses from, like, countless people about the way they deal with breakups, how their breakups have been, is there a definitive, do you have any advice on the best way to dump someone in the <laughs> most that will cause the least damage or the least level of sort of, like strife and um angst.
0: It sort of sounds like the advice is just like it's not you it's me. It's right, like the best way to break up can... with them, right? <laughs> yeah. Cuz then you don't criticize them at all. You're just like right?
3: I know that line does seem like a cliche, but I think to some degree to say like hey, you know, attraction is idiosyncratic. Like dating, everyone has their preferences whether they make sense or not. So you know if i say you're not the right person for me it doesn't necessarily say anything about who you are it could be you know that i'm the one who has uh, whatever idiosyncratic preferences and beliefs and stuff like that
0: it's so fascinating to hear you say is like the the opening salvo in a kind breakup message attraction is idiosyncratic so basically what you're saying is to open <laughs> with like i just don't find you attractive this is horrible <laughs> <laughs> No, this runs way. so contrary to the way that everybody, like, nobody wants to hear that, right?
3: Well, like, physical attraction is, is one aspect. But I think, like, trying to, to make clear the message that, um you know, there's a lot of different reasons why a person might just right. feel like you're not the right fit. Um, and that that, you know, probably wouldn't apply to all people. That it's just kind of something particular to this situation and how I feel about you. But I'm just a person out there with my own opinions um, based on my own personal experience and that it's kind of a single instance rather than like something that's likely to happen over and over again.
2: Hmm. You know what? This actually confirms my go-to method, which is always an ex-boyfriend who you've never even heard of has re-entered my life and it's just got so little to do with you. I think I'm going to keep using that method is what I just learned Ow. from all this.
0: If that, someone did that to me, I would worry that... Uh... It would be like, well, I thought I was in a really meaningful relationship, but this whole time she was just like thinking about <laughs> someone else. I
1: know. There's literally no good way to break up with someone is what <laughs> I Yeah, maybe that's true. I'm On the other hand, David, I think we
2: have learned since you have an extremely fixed personality, it is like such a blessing that you've been in this one relationship Honestly. since like age 18. <laughs> <I think laughs> I'd be I crushed. You would take a breakup yeah. really fucking badly, yeah. which I've also learned today.
0: I actually, before I got together with Risa, I did take several uh, breakups before that really, really badly. Oh, no.
2: When you were like 16 years old? right? Yeah. But that's like like your
1: brain's just not developed. I don't know if you can yeah. really. Or he's been
2: fixed since age
1: 16. That's true. I percentage. would also maybe believe that.
0: <laughs> I think if you asked my parents, I'd been fixed since I was like four.
1: <laughs> also, I love how we keep saying fixed like you were
0: needed or
3: something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, Lauren, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a blast talking to you.
3: Yeah, thank you so much.
0: didn't have time for voicemails this week, but we've been getting tons of great responses from all of you. Remember that you can always reach us at 646-494-3590. This week, please tell us about your most extreme post-breakup stories, like the worst breakups you've ever had. And we'll talk about it next time. For now, that's it for Sex Lives. Uh, Sex Lives is produced by Sam Digman. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. See you next week, and thanks for listening.